Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all today. My name is Darren. Uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff. How you doing? You guys doing all right today? Yeah? Good. All right, good. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it up to Mark. We were just reading out of Mark, and we're beginning a new series there this morning. If you didn't have the opportunity today to pick up uh, one of our Mark journals, you can grab one of those in the lobby on your way out today. And uh, also, if you're watching online, you can grab one of those. Uh, we, we could send it to you or whatever, especially if you're out of town. But I want to make sure everybody has one of those. I, before I dive into Mark, though, I do want to just uh, say a word of greeting to anybody that might be a guest here today. So we know that on any given Sunday, we've got guests that come in either with friends or family or maybe you're from the neighborhood, but if you're a guest with us, we're really glad you're here. We hope this place feels like home to you, and in fact, we hope it won't be very long before you won't feel like a guest and it'll just feel like your place. But to that end, we have a gift for you and some information about our church. The ushers are coming down the aisle, and if you'll just get their attention, it doesn't really matter how you do this. You don't have to stand up or wave your arms or whatever, but you kind of give them a little wave. They'll pass you one of these. This has, I think there's a copy of the Mark Journal in there. I think there's a free cup of coffee at the well. Lots of uh, information and that sort of thing. Ways to get connected around here. And then on top of that, if you ever have questions about our church or what it is we're doing or what matters most to us, uh, I'm happy to have that conversation with you down the road. But I just want to make sure you know we're, we're glad that you're here and we want to get more connected with you going forward. So, oh, I also need to say, two weeks ago, in our, uh, when we were in the midst of our Who We Are series, which we're just coming out of, we did a little bit of a game. You remember that? Two weeks ago with the stickers and you had to identify the stickers. We had a few winners. We had one person who got all 11 right and then we had uh, three, I will say like three, one individual and two teams who got 10 out of 11 right, which isn't too shabby because they were kind of tricky, but I have prizes for you today. So I'm not handing them out right now. I have them backstage. It's a full set of all the stickers. Uh, I texted you this week to let you know you're a winner. Or I emailed you so you know who you are. But if you haven't, uh, if you're here and you want to come grab me afterwards, I'll pass that to you. So that out of the way, let's talk about the Gospel of Mark. I am really excited about the Gospel of Mark and this study that we're going to be in because, well, num because it's about Jesus and I'm dedicated my life to following Jesus. So there's a piece of it that's that. But I will also say that coming out of this series, Who We Are, we've just basically spent four weeks saying, as a church, Fullerton Free exists to reveal Christ. We want Christ to be revealed to us and in us and by us, not only now, but in the future. And that is absolutely the sentiment of Mark as he writes this gospel. The, the heart and soul of what Mark is attempting to do in his gospel is to reveal Christ, not just so that people have more information about who Jesus was, but so that they will follow him. He's trying to be provocative. He's trying to provoke a response. And so before we dive into the actual words on the page, let me, let me set a couple things up for you. The first one is, uh, as we're working through this study, uh, we're moving through it pretty quick. So the Gospel of Mark uh, is written by Mark. Now, interesting note about Mark. Mark is, um, he's not one of the 12 apostles, right? So when you think about Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, sometimes you might just assume that Mark was one of the 12. He's not. He's actually a friend of Peter, who was one of the 12. And there's all kinds of other places in the New Testament where you can read about Mark, or as he sometimes called John Mark. I might uh, encourage you, if you're looking for a little bit of homework, to go and look at the other places where John Mark comes up, both in the book of Acts and in 1 Peter. Uh, there are references to John Mark. We know that he was uh, relatively wealthy. They used his house as a gathering space. We know that he was friends with Peter. We know that he had a little bit of conflict with Paul. You'll read about that in Acts. There was a little bit of, you know, drama, but all of that got worked out. And when we look at the Gospel of Mark, what we're essentially seeing, most theologians agree, that what we're essentially seeing is Mark writing down and recording sermons that he heard Peter preach when he and Peter were traveling together. So if you look at the, gospel, or at the, at the story in the book of Acts, 
There are several incredible sermons by Peter. Uh, In fact, let's look at one of those uh, just to kind of set this up and set the stage for it. In Acts chapter 10, this isn't the only sermon by Peter, but one of the sermons that Peter preaches to the Gentiles, I want to read this to you or a section of it because as we study Mark chapter 1, I want you to hear how similar and familiar what he does in the first chapter of Mark is to the gospel message of Peter. So uh, out of Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 36, this is a sermon of Peter's. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, for those of you who've been in the church for a while, or if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you hear that message and you're like, yeah, that's a pretty basic gospel message. But the way it's framed, with the ministry of Jesus starting after his baptism, the pointing to the appointment of the Holy Spirit, the way in which he travels from Judea and on, all of these things will show up in the gospel of Mark, which is what leads us to say, likely, even though Mark himself didn't experience all of these things firsthand, what he's communicating are, are the recorded messages of Peter. So it's kind of a collaborative work, if you will. Now, anybody, if you've got like a favorite pastor that you listen to or a favorite Christian author, a lot of those people kind of, they'll use similar stories or they have certain phrases and ways of approaching things and you kind of get to the place where you, you sort of are familiar with them. That certainly has happened with my own kids. Um, all of my children were born after the year 2000, but I started preaching and teaching in like 97. So when they were born, they were basically born into the home of a guy who was teaching the Bible regularly. And I'll tell you, my kids know all my stories. They know a lot of the phrasing I use. They know a lot of the main emphases that I use. And sometimes probably even with a little bit of nausea, they're probably a little bit over it, right? But one time I was, uh, I was teaching at a camp and my son Jack was in high school at the time and he was actually uh, signed up for the camp. So he was sleeping in cabins and eating in the dining hall and he was uh, participating. And so I, just trying to be like a nice dad, I sort of left out any stories that I might have told about Jack because I have lots of stories about my family and so I, just, I didn't tell any of those because I didn't want to embarrass him and whatever. About halfway through the week, like on Wednesday, my son Jack comes up to me and he's like, Dad, Aren't you going to tell that story of, you know, when I did this or when I did that? Aren't you going to tell me these stories about me? And I said, well, I wasn't telling those because I know you got friends in the room and I didn't want to, I didn't want it to be weird. And he goes, dad, the kids in my cabin don't believe that you're my dad, right? (laughs) And I was like, oh, so he'd been telling them like, yeah, the speaker at camp is my dad. And they're like, whatever. He's talking about Hank and he's talking about Lily and he's talking about Will, but he's not talking about you. So on Wednesday, I course corrected and I only told stories about Jack after that. So it worked out okay. But the only way he was even able to reference that was his familiarity with my style. Any of my kids could probably get up here and tell you some of my anecdotal stories because they've heard them a million times, right? Mark had walked and done ministry and ministered alongside Peter as he was an apostle. And what Mark is recording for us are these stories that Peter himself 
did not have time to write down. Now, with that said, it's worth noting that as we read the book of Mark, uh, these things come along very staccato. So Mark uses a lot of these like little stories packed together in kind of a rapid approach. And some of that is his attempt to sort of move the action along. If you're the kind of person who pays attention to repetition, the word immediately, Mark uses the word immediately over 40 times in this book. So you can kind of have your radar up for the word immediately. What he's doing in each of those cases is he's going, here we go, and on to the next thing, and on to the next thing. He doesn't really linger anywhere for very long. He's trying to lift us and to get us to look at Jesus, and he's moving from story to story. He'll spend uh, more than a third of the book just talking about Jesus' march to the cross and his resurrection, um, we can see his emphases, right? We can see what Mark is pointing at, but we, for the sake of our study, will also be moving fast in the midst of a book that already moves fast. So here's my warning to you. Like, we're gonna be in the book of Mark. We could have spent two years studying the book of Mark We are going to study the book of Mark until Easter. We're going to finish on Easter Sunday, which means we're moving along at a pretty quick clip. My initial plan, and I'll just throw this out because I want you to see it coming. My initial plan was that each week I would teach a portion of a section of the book of Mark, and then I would hand you some homework, a little bit of homework for you to do in your own private study of God's Word, a little homework for you to do in a small group, which means that I'm expecting that you're involved in some kind of a small group, right? And maybe a little bit of homework that you could do in conversation with friends of yours that that aren't followers of Jesus. When I pitched that to the teaching team, they were like, man, if you try to give people like a bunch of homework right out of the gate, people are going to freak out and they're going to take up pitchforks and torches and run you out of town, whatever. So here's the deal. I've backed away from my initial plan. I am going to trickle out some homework every week, little bits here and there, right? But I'm just warning you now, when we get to January, every week I'm going to be giving you stuff to do during the week. It's the only way to move through a book like this and to do it well. And what that will also do is it will diminish our emphasis on you just hearing God's word taught by somebody else, but you being involved in it in small group and in your own study and whatever. So while I'm not giving you that homework today... I want you to know it's coming in January, so sharpen your pitchforks, right? We'll get there when we get there, but that's coming. Uh, We're moving very rapidly. That means we have to take uh, sections really quickly. It's also important in the midst of this for you not to let yourself get distracted by the things Mark doesn't say. Okay, let me tell you what I mean by this. If you're, an, if you're a, a person who's exploring faith, if you don't know anything about the gospel of Mark, if you're not a Christian, this won't be an issue for you. But for some of you who've been in the church for a long time, when we read some of these sections, you're gonna be like, oh, I wish he would have said this like he does in Luke, or I wish he would have said this like he does in John. And you can get distracted by sort of filling in the blanks that Mark leaves, right? Now remember, Mark, uh, most people believe Mark's gospel was the first, So it follows that Matthew and Luke and John were likely in writing their Gospels trying to fill in some of those gaps, things they felt like were really important that Mark had left out. But what can happen for us as we study Mark is that if you're constantly going, well, Mark didn't say this about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and Mark didn't say this about whatever, then you can get distracted so much by what he didn't say that you miss what he is saying. Does that make sense? So don't feel the need to correct Mark. If you want to go and read Luke and Matthew and John, that's never a bad idea. But what is important in the midst of this study is for you to pay attention to what Mark is saying. There's an economy of words here that is on purpose. The title of our series is simply Jesus. And what Mark is trying to do is not get in the weeds on other things, but to inform 
you and I about who Jesus is so that we would follow him. Does that make sense? Mark has a very clear agenda, and his agenda is discipleship, that people would understand who Jesus is and be his disciples, right? By the way, this will be a great series for you to bring your friends to. So if you've got coworkers or you've got family members or neighbors or people who are kind of exploring who Jesus is but they don't know a lot about him, if they've got questions for you about why you're a Christian or why you go to church or whatever, this could be a great introductory place for you to invite people from your, your workspace or from your neighborhood to say, we're gonna be studying Jesus for the next several months in the Gospel of Mark. You should come along. It's, it's very basically and centrally focused on who Christ is, right? So it's a great place to bring people People. We're moving fast. Uh, the last thing I want to say is, and I've kind of said this already in introduction here, is that Mark is moving fast. He is declaring for us what he knows about Jesus, but he's trying to show that knowing Jesus provokes a response. Understanding things about Jesus is provocative. Does that make sense? So all throughout the book, if you have a journal and you're taking notes, one of the things I would in, sort of encourage you to be watching for are people's responses to Jesus, right? There are people in the, in the story who see Jesus and they immediately declare their faith in him. There are people who see Jesus and they love him. But there are also people who are distracted by Jesus or people who are indifferent to Jesus. There are people who are angered by Jesus. There are people who are frustrated by Jesus. There are all kinds of different responses those responses are in this book on purpose, not just so that you know that there was a wide range of responses to who Jesus was, but also so that you will look at your response. So as you're sort of keeping track of the ways you see people responding to Jesus in this gospel, I would also want you to keep track of your responses. I would tell you that as I've been studying the book and preparing for this series, there are a lot of places where I look at it and go, man, I just don't get why he does it the way he does it. I don't know why he said this. Why didn't he do that? How come he doesn't tell them this, right? I have questions. There are moments where I'm confused. There are moments where I see something Jesus does and I'm like, that is why I love Jesus. So good, right? I want you to record those responses in the moments where you feel affection, in the moments where you feel awe, in the moments where you feel confused, in the moments where maybe you feel frustrated because if you were Jesus, you would have done it different. I would like you to keep track of that. I think you'll find it very interesting to see the way in which Jesus provokes us. That it isn't just enough to know things about him, but that he is provoking movement in us, and that is still true today, just like it was when this was recorded. So with all of that sort of in preamble, I want us to look here at the first 20 verses of the book of Mark, and we're gonna have to move fast. I want to remind you, as we look at it, to pay attention, I, I would say that like there are a ton of major characters revealed in the first 20 verses. So we're gonna hear about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're gonna hear about the prophet Isaiah. We're gonna hear about John the Baptist. We're gonna hear about wild animals and angels, and we're gonna hear about Satan. We're gonna hear about all, like, all of the major characters show up in these first 20 verses. He's trying, to, he's trying to wow you. He's trying to wake you up. He's trying to get your attention and say, man, this is an important story. So as we walk through these first 20, where, where Mark is essentially setting up both his, what he believes and also the way in which Jesus is endorsed by a variety of people and then people follow him, I want, to, I want you to let yourself be woken up anew to who Jesus is. So here's what it says in the first verse of the first chapter of Mark. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ Christ 
the Son of God. And actually, we have to pause there before we go any further. It's interesting that he uses the word in the beginning. What he's trying to do for his original audience, right, for Jewish people to be looking at this, is he's trying to make a connection right out of the gate between the story of Jesus and the, the Old Testament scriptures. When he talks about it being the beginning of the gospel, right, the beginning of the story of Jesus, that in the beginning is intentional. It's there to sort of raise your radar to the fact that this isn't a standalone story. There is a new thing happening there is a new creation that God brings about in Christ, but is intrinsically tied to the story in Genesis where everything began. Does that make sense? So he says, here's the beginning. That's not the beginning we see in Genesis, but what he is pointing at is there is a connection between the two. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we use the word gospel pretty frequently, and I would guess that for you, uh, gospel means maybe one of two things. When I say the word gospel or when you read it here, maybe you think of the fact that it's a genre of literature, right? That in the Bible we've got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this is the beginning of one of them. So maybe for you it feels like he's talking about the style of literature, or it could be that when you hear the word gospel, you're thinking of the greater story of Jesus. The fact that God in Christ comes to the earth in the incarnation he takes the sin of the world upon himself. He dies in our place as an atoning sacrifice. He rises from the dead, proving that he has the power over sin and death. And he extends by his grace that same resurrection life to all who believe, right? When you hear the word gospel, you might be thinking about the story of Jesus' death, resurrection, and redemption life, right? But I want you to remember that when Mark was written... That wasn't the way they thought about the gospel. They didn't think when he says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they didn't think, oh, here comes that story about how he rose and, and, uh, and died, although that's what this is. The word gospel in its original use was used as a way to herald good news, exciting things that were happening in the world. When the emperor had a new child or when a new peace accord was forged between two countries or when a battle had finally concluded or whatever, they would talk about the gospel, the good news, of whatever magnificent thing had just occurred, right? We've got a new king, or there's a new princess born, or whatever. So what he's saying literally at the outset here is this is the beginning of the good news, and then there's a word of, right, which doesn't seem super significant. I don't want to play too much into this, but he says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that when Mark points at the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's pointing out the fact that Jesus absolutely declares the gospel, right? We'll see that even in these first 20 verses. He declares this message of the availability of the kingdom of God, but it's also true that this gospel is Jesus. So one of the things I want you to understand is Mark is articulating that Jesus is the gospel Jesus proclaims. Does that make sense? Jesus isn't talking about something outside of himself. He's not talking about something that is not connected to him. Jesus is the gospel and proclaims the gospel, both. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word Jesus, as you may remember from the other books, means that uh, God is salvation or Yahweh is a savior, right? So Jesus means savior. The word Christ, some of you might think of that just as being Jesus' last name, you know, when he signs his checks, Mr. Christ or whatever, no. Christ is a word that means anointed one, right? So he's saying right here at the outset, this is the good news of God who is salvation, the anointed one, Christ, Jesus Christ, Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, right? The son of God is the way he finishes that first sentence. And the word son of God was used sometimes in Greek mythology and other contemporary places. The way he's using it here is to denote the fact that this Jesus who is salvation, this Christ who is the foretold Messiah, that he also is divine, 
And he comes from a royal line, right? The son of God, the son of God. He's, he's pointing out divinity and royal lineage. Mark is doing all of that in the first sentence. You see why we could take two years to study this book? In the first sentence, he is telling us what he believes, and he is communicating to us what he hopes we believe also. He is saying in no uncertain terms, this Jesus isn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a person who set the captives free. This Jesus is the one who was foretold. God brings salvation through him. He is both divine and royal. As the, as the section goes on, he will declare more things about Jesus and show us some endorsements. So as we move on, he does this second. Look at verse two, two and three. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah, by the way, revered by the Jewish people, who would in part have been his initial audience. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now it's interesting, he says he's giving you a quote from Isaiah, but actually this is a little bit of a mashup, right? It's a wicky, wicky, wicky little DJing that, uh, that Mark is doing. He's not strictly quoting out of Isaiah, he's quoting kind of a mashup out of Isaiah and Exodus 23 and Malachi 3, right? Uh, and in those places, it's really interesting as he puts them together, I'll just read you a couple of these. In Malachi 3.1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's very interesting that these prophecies are about the Lord, right? About the Lord preparing a way for deliverance to take place. An initial audience who heard this would say, like, this isn't talking about Jesus, not Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, this is talking about Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who is going to clear a level path. He's the one who's going to make everything that's crooked straight. Yahweh is the one that these things are talking about. And Mark would have said, exactly, right? Jesus is God, right? Jesus is the divine fulfillment of the way that God makes the crooked things straight. These uh, prophetic sort of passages he puts into a sandwich to point to the people not only the endorsement of the Old Testament prophets, but to say this Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we've been waiting for. Remember that when, when Mark says to us and to them, this Jesus is the Messiah, the one that was foretold, the one who, who will create these straight paths that will be heralded by John the Baptist, when Mark says that, this comes as something of a relief to people who'd been waiting for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. In some ways what Mark is saying is all this waiting that you've done and that your parents did and that your grandparents did and that your great grandparents did, all of this waiting for the one who was talked about in Isaiah and the one who was talked about in Malachi, right? All of that waiting is over because he's here, he has come, he has done this work. So Mark isn't just telling us what he believes about Jesus. Now he's saying Isaiah was also pointing at Jesus. The Old Testament prophets who was, were pointing at God were pointing at Jesus because that's who Jesus is. 
He'll go on then to talk about John the Baptist, right? So the, the prophecy that he gives us out of Isaiah talks about one who will be a messenger crying out in the wilderness to make way for the Lord, right? That messenger, he says, is John the Baptist. He says here in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John appeared, the fulfillment of this prophecy, right? John the Baptist appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So now he says, Isaiah said there would be this messenger who would come saying, make way, ready, prepare the way for the Lord, right? Now he says, John the Baptist is the fulfillment. He is that messenger. John the Baptist came out and was baptizing, he says, in the Jordan. The Jordan is a significant river for the people of Israel, right? It's a place of new beginnings, it's a place of crossing over. It's a place that sometimes they had success and sometimes they had moments of great cowardice, right? The opportunity to enter the promised land that they will not take in some cases, right? Now this John the Baptist is in the Jordan River, a place of new beginning, a place of promise fulfilled. And he's baptizing people with a, a baptism of repentance and anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And it says crowds of people are coming. He's in, a, he's in a powerful position, this John the Baptist. By the way, it describes him as wearing camel hair and uh, eating locusts and honey, which just sounds creepy to us and so, kind of weird. But Mark is going the extra mile to say, this is an Old Testament prophet in our day, right? Now, the connection with the camel's hair and the locusts and honey would have been like if I told you, hey, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. If I told you like, oh, I was over at the Circle K and I saw a dude with a mohawk and a bunch of gold chains and he told me I should only buy premium gas, you'd be like, was that Mr. T? That might have been Mr. T. You might have been talking to me. Actually, only the Gen Xers would do that, right? We're like, yes, Mr. T. And everybody else is like, what? I could use a couple of things like mohawk and gold chains and you, some of you, would get the idea that what I was saying is the guy who told me to buy a certain kind of gas was doing so in the spirit of Mr. T. He didn't want me to be a fool, right? You would make the connection because of the way he was dressed. What John the Baptist is representing here is the spirit of Elijah. And to an initial Jewish audience, when he says he's wearing camel's hair and he's eating locusts and honey, they wouldn't have treated it like we would. They would have been like, that's an Old Testament prophet. We know what an Old Testament prophet looks like and that's who that is. So Mark is not only saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's not only saying Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets endorse Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now John the Baptist who came in power and had a huge crowd of people coming to him in the spirit of Old Testament prophets, he says, I can call you to repentance but there's one who's greater than me that is coming. And in fact, he says, I'm not even able to untie his shoelaces. That's how much greater than me he is. I can't even be a servant in his house, comparatively. He says, I, I can dunk you in the water. I can get you wet here. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is really interesting. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's some connection to Old Testament prophecy there, too. But in every case in the Old Testament, when people were thinking about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God was some, someone that only God himself could give, Right? The Spirit of God was only given by God himself. So for Mark to say that the message of John the Baptist was, Jesus is going to 
plunge you into the Holy Spirit was in essence John the Baptist saying, this isn't just a great teacher, this isn't just a good guy, this is God. He will do something in your life that only God can do. Does that make sense? So we have endorsement from Isaiah, endorsement from Old Testament prophets, endorsement from John the Baptist, endorsement from Mark himself. And then he goes on to talk about this Jesus directly in Mark uh, chapter 1, pick it up with me if you will, in verse 9. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. I want to really quickly just say this. John was doing a baptism of repentance, and it may put up a little question mark in your mind of like, why does Jesus need to do a baptism of repentance if he was perfect? If he lived a sinless life, there's no need for him to be baptized for repentance. The baptism that Jesus undergoes here has nothing to do with his own confession or repentance. It has everything to do with the fact that he's in the Jordan and he is leading people across into the new promised land, right? So there is a sense of solidarity with the brokenness of people, but Jesus himself has nothing to repent of or confess. And so what we see him doing there is entering in the Jordan and then essentially leading people out to the kingdom of God, which we'll get to his message in just a second. But Jesus is baptized, and when that happens, here's what it says. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately saw the heavens being torn open. That's not a literal tear in the sky. It's not a a little door in the sky. That is Jesus being able to see through to the truer reality, right? To a truer reality. He sees the heavens as if they're being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So in the baptism of Jesus, what Mark records for us is different than some of the other writers. What Mark says to us is that in this baptism, there is a moment where he is endorsed by the Father as a beloved son and by the presence of the Holy Spirit in a very public way. So now we not only have Isaiah, we not only have Mark, we not only have John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophets, now we literally have the Father and the Holy Spirit endorsing this Jesus as the one who was foretold. I love the fact that God the Father acknowledges publicly that Jesus is his son whom he loves. It's such a beautiful moment for him to say that. And I was thinking this week, is kind of a moment of reflection for me, that for those of us in the room who are Christians, for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, The Bible teaches that that when God sees us, he doesn't see all of our foibles, he doesn't see all of our knuckle-headed moments, he doesn't see all of our sin and our brokenness, all of our selfishness and greed, that if you are in Christ, you are alive in him and dead to your old life. A passage like Colossians chapter 3 says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think when I was reading the Mark 1 passage first and I heard the declaration of the Father over the Son, I thought, like, how cool it would be to hear God say this about Jesus. What I want to say to you is that if you're a follower of Jesus, according to the theology that we believe, God doesn't just say that over Jesus. He also says it over you who are in Christ, alive in Christ, that this affirmation of Jesus is an affirmation also for any daughter and son who are in Christ. I want you to hear him say it over you. It's a beautiful thing about the position we hold in Jesus. But he is endorsed here by the Father and he is endorsed here by the Holy Spirit. It's maybe worth noting just briefly that there is no defense of the Trinity in in the Gospel of Mark. He doesn't take the time to go, hey, for those of you who are unsure about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let me give you six systematic theology points that you can argue about with your friends. There is an implied understanding 
and the part of the gospel writers that the Trinity exists, that it functions in community and in love, that it's working together. They don't ever take the time to stop and go, can we explain to you how the Trinity works? Or let us defend for you why the Trinity is actually a thing. Because they walked with Jesus, and they talked to Jesus, and they lived with Jesus, and they had seen the Trinity in action. Does that make sense? So what we hear from Mark, and Mark is a reflection of the messages of Peter, what we hear from Mark as he reflects Peter is, he doesn't need to stop and explain the Trinity because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was just part of what it meant to be walking the trail with Jesus. Jesus is baptized and it's like the sky is torn open and the Father declares his affection and the Spirit rests on the Son and like, of course, because that's how they do, right? So we hear Trinitarian theology in this, this endorsement and then as, he's, as the Spirit of God rests on him, he's immediately led. So we see something about the leading of the Spirit in Jesus' life, but back to Mark chapter one, the Spirit immediately, and there's that word immediately again, he moves us on to the next thing. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him, that's Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's a very abbreviated passage compared to some of the others, but what Mark is pointing out here, number one, is that Jesus is led by the Spirit. He goes into the wilderness. Now, for you, the wilderness might not mean that much. But again, for the Hebrew people, for the Jewish people, just like the Jordan River was packed with significance and symbolism, The wilderness was packed with significance and symbolism. The wilderness was a place for the Jewish people of deliverance some of the time, but it was also a place of testing and trial. It was absolutely for the Jewish people, the wilderness was a place of failure, like embarrassing failure and death. Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's there for 40 days. Don't miss the connection with the fact that the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he does what they're not capable of doing he prevails. He goes into a place of testing and trial and he doesn't fail the test. He passes the test. Satan is not more powerful than him there, right? There is something that Mark is telling us about the power of Jesus over the spiritual realm, about his ability ability to be victorious and successful even in places where we as human beings have stumbled and in places where we might look and go, man, that's a hard place to do business. Jesus is like, I got this, right? Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. Uh, We had a good conversation about the wild animals. I don't know why in this text it says he was with the wild animals. That's an interesting detail. I don't know what kind of wild animals they were. I don't know if they were nice to him or he was fighting them all the time. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Some people say it's just to show uh, kind of like the dangerous nature of the wilderness. Some people will say he's drawing a parallel here between Adam, right? So he's talking about Jesus as sort of the new Adam, and Adam had animals around him, and so we hear about the the dove, and we hear about the locusts, and we hear about the wild animals as kind of a corollary to the Genesis story. That's possible. What I know is it says he was there with the wild animals and that angels were ministering to him. So what we see there is there are angelic beings and they serve this Jesus, right? What's Mark doing? Again, he's just trying to say, I told you what I believe. I've told you what Isaiah foretold. I've told you what John the Baptist said. I'll tell you what the Father and the Holy Spirit say. Let me tell you too if you have any question. Satan can't beat him and the angels serve him And maybe he has friends who are wild animals. I don't know, right? But he's trying to make this point again and again, and he's leading us in Mark to the place then where Jesus begins to preach. It says this in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Let me point it out to you again. When Jesus proclaims the gospel, Jesus is proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The gospel proclaiming the gospel. 
He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This is a summary statement. This doesn't cover everything Jesus ever said, but it boils everything Jesus ever said down into one simple, compact phrase. The message of Jesus was a message of immigration. It was a message of immigration, right? And every one of the gospel writers uh, conveys this. They do it in slightly different ways. But Mark here says Jesus began to preach and his message was repent. Now that word repent for us in modern usage many times means in like a churchy sense, stop doing bad stuff. But that isn't what the word meant initially and that only kind of covers even what it means now. The word repent means turn and go the other direction. Literally, right? So you were going north, turn and go south. You were going east, turn and go west. I'm not going to turn around. I don't want you to see my bald spot. But you understand, right? It's vanity. Uh, He says, repent for the kingdom of God is available. He doesn't say the kingdom of God will be here when you die. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is coming up the road. He says to these people who've been waiting for the kingdom of God to come, the time is fulfilled You waiting for the kingdom of God? You don't have to wait anymore. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is available and it can be yours if you turn. What's he saying? He's saying leave or abandon the kingdom of yourself, the kingdom of your own pride, the kingdom of your own sin, the kingdom where you are on the throne. Abandon that place and go the other direction. Immigrate to the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting here is the people of of Israel had a... They had a framework for the kingdom of God, and he doesn't totally eradicate their framework here at the beginning, but one of the things we'll see as we watch through the trajectory of the Gospel of Mark is that he will slowly move their thinking about the kingdom of God to his thinking about the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So they don't have it exactly right. They were expecting a, a, a military kingdom. They were expecting a kingdom of power that he was going to you know, chase the Romans out of town. That isn't what he came to do. But he doesn't come in trying to totally, uh, like, smash their thinking, he invites them into the kingdom of God and then he will walk with them over time to show them that maybe their perception of what the kingdom of God was going to be isn't as good as what it actually is. Does that make sense? But the message for us is the same as it was for them. You want to know what Jesus came to proclaim? What Jesus came to teach? You could be living in a different kingdom. That's his message. Turn and go this way and you could be living in the kingdom of God where the authority and the authenticity of God reigns supreme in your life, even though you live in a fallen world. Immediately after this, it says in verse 16, he declares this message, and again, that's a summary, but verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, there's that word again, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We can spend a lot of time talking about what it means to leave your nets or all, I've heard all those messages preached before. What's Mark saying? Mark's saying is Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is both Lord and God. The fulfillment of the prophecies about Yahweh that you heard from Isaiah and Malachi. He is endorsed by John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is endorsed by the Father and the Son. He comes bearing a message of the arrival and the availability of the kingdom. And when you hear that message and you understand who he is, what it should provoke in you is a recognition of his authority and the abandonment of your own plans. That's what he's saying. He's saying when you understand who this Jesus is, 
you'll lay down whatever you're doing to follow him. It's, it's interesting. This is not, by the way, how rabbis typically conducted their business. A rabbi in the first century would have been approached by a potential disciple, and they would have said to him, may we please follow you, and he would have had the decision about whether or not that should happen or could happen. Here, Jesus kind of breaks the mold, and he approaches these people, who, by the way, don't know anything theologically and haven't done anything really spiritual, and he says, follow me, and because of his authority, because of who he was, they dropped what they were doing immediately and they followed after him. As I finish this morning, and uh, so much of this is set up, but as I finish this this morning, I can't help but ask us, what does what you know about Jesus change about how you live? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think it's possible for a lot of us to function with a really deep theological understanding of who Jesus is, right? But how does that change the way you live? Does it ever cause you to drop your nets? Does it ever cause you to go someplace you didn't want to go? Does it ever cause you to speak to people you didn't want to speak to? Or does it ever change the direction of your life? It is Mark's impression that if you understand who Jesus is, that you understand the way in which he fulfills the prophecy, the endorsement of the Father and the Holy Spirit, if you understand the fact that he's uh, pointed to by John the Baptist who had power of his own, but even he will say, my power pales in comparison to Jesus's because he'll give you the Holy Spirit, right? When you understand all of these things, it provokes not just the ability to go, yeah, I know some things about Jesus, but it provokes action. What we see in this last section of 20 is that Jesus calls them and they go. That might seem overly simplistic to you, right? It might seem like that's all it takes. These guys don't know that much. They haven't really done anything that extraordinary, they're not, you know, the most sophisticated class of people in this particular hierarchy or whatever. They're just regular guys who Jesus calls and they're like, that seems better to me than what I'm doing with my life. I think what Mark is trying to get us to do from the very beginning is to say, I, Mark, and by extension through the teaching of Peter, believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And I believe God thinks that and I believe the Old Testament prophets thought that and I think John the Baptist thought that. And he's worth giving everything to. I think the question for us here in 2023 is, are you satisfied to just know some stuff about God? Or does what you know about God move you to action? Do you find the truth of who Jesus is provocative? And if not, I would encourage you as we study this book, not only to look at the responses of people, because here we have a response from the disciples. It's interesting to see their response, but remember I said at the very beginning, don't just be paying attention to the way they respond. Ask yourself how you respond. How do you respond to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is? That he was endorsed by the Father and the Holy Spirit. That he was endorsed by John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophets. How does that change who you will be when you go out of this place to, you know, Olive Garden or whatever it is you're doing? Please, you know, whatever. It's your choice. It should provoke us to action. There should be a response in us because of the authority and the authenticity of Jesus. That's where Mark begins, and it's a perfect stage from which for us to study the rest of this book. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its beauty and its simplicity. I'm really thankful for a, a book like Mark that doesn't have a lot of extraneous stuff. There's not a lot of fluff. It's just like a slideshow. Boom, 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 boom. And yet in each frame, we see you revealed. And that revelation of you, it causes us to ask the question of how is that same Jesus being revealed in me and by me? 
We thank you for the revelation of Jesus we see to us in the book of Mark. And we pray that it would provoke us to those next steps. That your spirit would conform us to Jesus' image and would compel us to be ambassadors of this beautiful good news that was preached by Jesus, but is Jesus. We pray that in his name and for his glory. Amen.